The Achaemenid Empire lasted 208 years. The Macedonian Empire of Alexander the Great lasted 231. The Roman Republic lasted 233. Romanov Russia lasted 234. Today, the United States of America is 244 years old. What happens next? Where do we go from here? What do we build out of the ashes? Hello, I'm Kanaz Filan, and these are notes from the end of time. Hello again, everybody. Welcome to the 13th episode of Notes from the End of Time. This is Kanaz Filan here with you, and while our last episode covered the cheery topic of hell, Thanks to a suggestion from one of our listeners, Greg Stewart, we are putting in today an episode on heaven. And of course, today, heaven is more often the subject of jokes than any serious talk. I mean, that's where the sky daddy lives. That's where you go to get your pie in the sky. It's obviously a silly myth, but again, it's one of those myths that have persisted across across a lot of cultures. This idea that there was this place after death where certain souls would reside in a, in a state of bliss and amongst the gods and the higher beings. You find this in the Rig Vedas, you find it in Buddhism, you find it in Celtic mythology, Nordic mythology, Zoroastrianism, among many of the Great Plains Indians. Of course, you had the happy hunting grounds. So this idea seems to be something, if it's not hardwired into us, it's an idea we all independently came up with across a whole wide area and across a very long time scale. And you can, of course, certainly argue that there were significant differences between each culture's vision of heaven, and you would be right, but let's look at the common views. The, co the common thread with these ideas was this: were, these were places of bliss, and they were places where the deceased soul was in a closer presence to the divine, to God, to the gods, to the heroes, whatever you want to say. The ideas, of course, you know, the Islamic heaven looks different than the Christian heaven, which looks different than the Buddhist heaven, but there are a lot of common threads between these ideas. But rather than going through every vision of after, the afterlife that has ever been written down, let's focus on the Christian vision and let's start by looking at one of the words that are, we use most commonly for heaven, and that word is paradise. And the word paradise has some very deep roots. In English, it comes from paradis, which comes from the Latin paradisus, and that came from the Greek paradesos. And that came, so far as we could tell, from a very early Proto-Iranian word paradesia, which means walled enclosure, it appears in Old Persian as Pedidedem, and Evestam as Pedideza. And by the 6th century BC, 2600 years ago, the Assyrians were using it as Pardesu to mean domain. And for the Persians, Paradise was a walled garden. This is something they picked up from the Babylonians, as you'll recall, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, the walled and irrigated gardens of Babylon, were one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The Persians took that technology and they used it to create these beautiful gardens that were filled with all the most beautiful plants and flowers that the king's gardeners could find, and they typically surrounded the dwelling place of the king. They were peaceful, beautiful places where the royals and where the rulers could walk in peace and safety amongst beauty. And that vision 
we see in in the story of Genesis, in the story of the Garden of Eden, where we see God takes six days creating the universe and everything around it, and then he fills the Garden of Eden with trees and with animals, and it's a place of beauty until such time as Adam and Eve disobey the Lord's commandments and eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. As a result of this disobedience, Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden outside of its walls. An angel is put out front with a flaming spear to make sure they don't come back in, and they're left to make their way for themselves in the wilderness. And if we look at the early stories of Adam and Eve and later of Cain and Abel, you see what anthropologists would recognize as a pretty accurate description of the change in society as we moved from being hunter-gatherers who were just living off the land and what we could take to being agriculturalists and pastoralists as we took control of the land. We started seeing things like economic inequality. We started seeing people of a higher rank and a lower rank. We started seeing war. We started to see brother killing brother. We saw many great accomplishments, of course, but we also saw with every great accomplishment came greater and greater capacity for us to do evil. I would note again that this idea that we are living in a fallen state, that at some point in our distant past we had been much happier and much closer to the gods, is something we again see in other cultures. I'm thinking here of the Greek, the myth of Atlantis, within the Vedas, the idea is that there was a golden age and that we were living in the Kali Yuga. This idea that at some point we would return after death to a state which we once enjoyed as a matter of course and which we had once lost, as C.S. Lewis noted in several works, it's like we have this deep-rooted longing burned into our souls for this better place that we remember even though we've never seen it. And though heaven is the end goal of Christians, when you look at the Bible, there are not a lot of very specific definitions of descriptions of what heaven looks like. We know that it's called the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the Father, and the kingdom of Christ. So, we know that God is the ruler of heaven and Christ alongside him at his right hand. We also hear it called the city of God and the heavenly Jerusalem. Jesus told us that there were many mansions in his father's house and that he was going to prepare a place for his followers. We also hear it called life everlasting, and there's the idea again that heaven exists in eternity, not so much for all time, or more precisely, outside of time. We are told that heaven is the place where God resides with the angelic hosts, and that before the creation of the Garden of Eden, there was a battle, a war in the angelic hosts, which resulted in a significant chunk of the angels being cast out of heaven and into the other place. We are told that the leader of that angel, an angel we know today best as Satan, was responsible for tempting Eve into eating the tree, not from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and thereby getting herself, her and Adam, cast out of Eden the same way that Lucifer and his followers were earlier cast out. We're also told that Satan continues to hold dominion over this earth, and that Satan and his angels work over time to make sure that we do not find our way to heaven. And we're told that the only chance we have of regaining heaven, of regaining our place in the heavenly kingdom, is to accept Jesus Christ, 
to accept that he was born of a virgin and that he died on a cross and that he rose from the dead in full payment of our debt and that if we let him, he can create us as a new man or a new woman in Christ Jesus and help us to become what God had always intended us to be and free us from our sinful nature and from the clutches of the devil. And that is a pretty complicated story. Let's just start out by explaining, first of all, heaven is the home of God the Father. And what do we mean by God the Father? Now, St. Anselm described God, God the Father, as that greater than which nothing can be, nothing greater can be conceived. Within the Abrahamic traditions, Islam, Rabbinic Judaism, Christianity, there's an idea. God the Father is often spoken of in superlatives, the all-powerful, omniscient, all-loving, omnibenevolent. The idea God the Father is beyond our conception, but his intentions are ultimately benevolent and he loves us. That doesn't mean that we don't we aren't held to the consequences of our own actions, but there's the idea that the one God who created the universe and everything in it, amidst all this vastness, that God also takes a deep personal interest in the behavior and in the well-being of the dominant species on a small planet, a mid-sized planet orbiting a mid-sized star in a not particularly significant corner of the Milky Way galaxy. Religious Jews, Christians, and Muslims all agree that this God, Allah, Hashem, God the Father, as you will, intervenes directly in the affairs of this small world and this dominant species. There is disagreement as to how the various stories which have come down in this tradition should be interpreted, but there is a general agreement that this universe was created by one God, and that the Creator is the only God who is worthy of worship. The Abrahamic traditions also agree that human beings have a soul which is made in the image of God, and while they have varying ideas on the afterlife, they all agree that after death that soul stands before God and is judged for what it did and did not do in its previous life. And I would note that the monotheism is a particular hallmark of the Abrahamic religions, but as I noted before earlier, the idea of a judgment after death is not at all unique to these traditions, neither is the idea that we have a soul or that we can ennoble our soul by our good actions and that we disgrace and deform our soul by our ignoble and bad actions. The place where Christianity really breaks with Judaism and with Islam is in Judaism and in Islam, there's an idea that the individual can win salvation, can win a place in the afterlife in heaven through following the law, through doing good deeds, that the individual is only saved through their own actions and their own virtue. Christianity looks at that God who created this world looks at that moral code and then looks at the human being and understands we are incapable of living up to that moral code. We are an inherently flawed species. Christians believe that 2,000 years ago, 
God staged an intervention. He sent his only begotten son, Jesus, and Jesus preached for a few years, was crucified, and then rose from the dead in full payment of our sins. He paid the debt that Adam incurred. As of 2015, there were 2.3 billion people in the world, 31.2% of the total world population of 7.3 billion, who believe that story and identify as Christians. There are also 1.8 billion, 24.1% of the world's population, who believe that God staged an intervention some 500 years later, wherein he delivered Al-Quran to a prophet named Muhammad in the Arabian Desert. So these ideas are, you know, they may seem strange in a secular world, but they are, they were the default ideas for centuries before this and really only got pushed into the background starting with the French Revolution and really taking off with the Russian Revolution. As Harriet Sherwood put it in an August 27, 2018 Guardian article entitled Religion, Why Faith is Becoming More and More Popular, if you think religion belongs to the past and we live in a new age of reason, you need to check out the facts. 84% of the world's population identifies with a religious group. Members of this demographic are generally younger and produce more children than those who have no religious affiliation, so the world is getting more religious, not less, although there are significant geographical variations. Across much of the world, and indeed, Across much, probably most, of the United States, Christianity, not atheism, is the default setting. Those who conclusively reject the existence of a soul and of an afterlife are actually in a pretty small minority. Again, once you get on you know, atheist social media, it can be really easy. It can be really easy to miss that. But the important thing here is, why is this idea so prevalent? Let's, for a moment, humor the atheist idea. This is some kind of an evolutionary quirk. It's a quirk which appears to have been with us for as long as we've been able to establish existence of funerary rites and in our earliest in our earliest religious texts in our earliest myths this idea that humanity was possessed of a soul and that there was a life after death you can't argue on went one side of your mouth that these were just soothing myths to help us get over our fear of the death, and on the other, talk about the ways that they kept Christians living in terror because of fear of eternal torment. I mean, honestly, wouldn't eternal oblivion be preferable to eternal damnation? You can't say, well, we're it's hardwired into us, it's just an evolutionary fluke. Well, if so, then it must have served some purpose that kept us alive for tens of thousands of years, and which might indeed be the thing which marked our change from the missing link into humanity. When an idea shows up across multiple times and across multiple cultures for millennia, for tens of millennia, that doesn't necessarily mean it's true. I'm not going with the argumentum ed populum here, but I am saying that when an idea is that widespread, I would say it definitely deserves serious consideration. So with that in mind, let's take a look at what Christianity's view of heaven is. And I have to add here the quick disclaimer that there are serious disagreements between various denominations as to exactly how one qualifies to get into heaven. 
about the nature of salvation, about the value of various sacraments towards that. What I'm just going to give is a very general outline of things which what I will call Nicene Christians are Christians who follow the creed, the creed of the Nicene Creed, which was agreed in the fourth century at the Council of Nicaea, their views on heaven. One of the big ones is that in heaven we will be in the eternal presence of God the Father. The second is, as as Jesus says in a famous passage, "I am the way, the truth, and the life." No man cometh to the Father unless he come by me. And Christianity has received a lot of negative feedback over that claim. So you're saying that everybody is damned to hell except people who happen to be born into your ancestral religion. How very convenient. And there are a lot of denominations in Christianity. There are a lot of different interpretations of what this means. I can tell you about my ancestral tradition, which is Roman Catholicism. Catholicism does hold there is no salvation outside the church and that baptism into the church in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and is a necessity for getting into heaven. However, they also add, in addition to the baptism of water, the sacrament of baptism is practiced in the Catholic Church and in other Nicene creedal churches. One is the baptism of desire. When it is not possible to be baptized, an act of perfect contrition or pure love of God will supply the omission. Such acts are a perfect and ultimate disposition, calling for the infusion of sanctifying grace, and at least implicitly include a desire and intention to receive baptism of water should occasion offer. Infants are not capable of baptism of desire. A heathen, believing, even though in a confused way, in a God whose will should be done and desiring to do that will, whatever it may be, probably has baptism of desire. It may be reasonably assumed that vast number of persons unbaptized by water have thus been rendered capable of enjoying the beatific vision. Baptism of blood is the other possible substitute for baptism of water, and consists of suffering martyrdom for the faith, or for some Christian virtue, which infuses sanctifying grace into the soul and forgives sin. Martyrdom produces this effect by a special privilege, as being a supreme act of love in imitation of the passion of our Lord, but the martyr must have had attrition for his sins. Baptism of blood extends to infants. Again, I have to caution you, this is not what all Christians believe. What I'm saying here is not what all Christians believe, but it is the, within the profession of faith for 1.2 billion Roman Catholics around the world. The Roman Catholic Church has never officially damned any individual to hell. It has, however, declared that a number of people who led especially holy lives or who did especially great deeds for the church have reached heaven, and we call those people saints. We venerate the saints. We do not worship them. That's a common accusation thrown at Roman Catholics. We believe that those saints will hear our prayers and convey them to God, convey them to Jesus, and that those saints led lives worthy of study and worthy of imitation, that they can provide an inspiration for us in their lives, and that they can even perform miracles on occasion on our behalf. The Catholic Church still, as a matter of position, believes that miracles still happen and are an ongoing thing. We believe that the God who created this universe has interceded in this universe from the beginning of time and that he continues to do so, 
and that among the means by which he intercedes is through angels and the saints who act as intercessors. The saints and angels are said to be in the direct presence of God. They see God, the Creator, face to face in a way that we can only see through like through the dimmest reflection of a reflection of a reflection. And for them, that is eternal bliss. That is the greatest and highest pleasure of being in heaven. I've seen the way many of our enemies, many of the people who want to tear society down, recoil in this horror and loathing and disgust and fear at the sight of a crucifix or the sight of a church and the nervous edge in their laughter every time they mock something holy. And I have to think to people like that, to people who have turned away from God, people who have made the deliberate choice to see God as non-existent or as a malevolent enemy, being in the eternal presence of God for these people would be eternal torture. Because it's very hard to describe a mystical experience, and because the mysteries of the afterlife are just that, mysteries, they are beyond human comprehension, we have tended to paint both heaven and hell in very material terms. The infamous one, of course, the 70 black-eyed virgins in the the Muslim heaven, you know, the classic one in our mythology, in Christian mythology, would be the angels floating around on clouds playing fluffy harps, and oh my, wouldn't that be boring? You know, as Mark Twain famously said that, like, where would he want to go for the afterlife? He would want to go to heaven for the climate and hell for the company, but Things are, of course, a lot more complicated than that. We use those material images as metaphors. That being said, there are two things as Catholics and as any creedal Christian that we are expected to believe are literal. The second coming of Christ in glory to judge the living and the dead and the resurrection of the dead. It is the belief of the Catholic Church and the traditional belief of Christians that on the second coming, the spirit will be clothed again in a new body in a perfected earth. There's frequently comparisons to the Garden of Eden. This will be a perfected Garden of Eden where those who have followed Christ will live, in, will live with him in glory forever and see his face. And the second coming... There, Okay, there's a lot of talk about the Second Coming. It has been popular for over a century in American evangelical circles. There have always been people fascinated with the last days and the book of Revelation. The Catholic Church's official position is it discourages people from trying to apply revelation to current events, and we're certainly expected to fight against the conditions which would lead to the rise of the Antichrist. We're not expected to help build a third temple so that the Antichrist can come. We're discouraged from reading the signs to see if Donald Trump or Joe Biden are the Antichrist, but we are encouraged to keep ourselves ready for because no man knoweth the hour or the day of his coming. But until such time as that second coming and redemption of the world, we are expected to behave as the body of Christ on earth, which is the church. We're expected to follow his will and to do his work. And he has made it clear, and the church history has certainly made it clear, this is not always an easy thing to do. Often in doing the work of the church, you will find yourself at odds with the world. You will be tempted to side with the worldly thing instead of the right thing, and do the safe or comfortable or convenient thing rather than the right thing. This is part of the human experience. As we've said, we know we're flawed individuals. That's why we turn to God for help. 
And when you make that commitment to follow Christ and to do the work that God intended for you to do on earth, you become part of the body of Christ. Now, it's more complicated that I want to make one thing really clear here. When you say that salvation is not exclusive to the Catholic Church, this is not the same thing as indifferentism, is what it's called in the Catholic Church. Indifferentism is the idea that any religion is just as good as another so long as you're honest and hardworking and you follow it. You can get to heaven by any means, so you should pick the one that suits you best. And okay, That does no homage to any religion. I mean, a Muslim believes the Quran is special. He has a special veneration for his religion. He may look at me as a person of the book and he could respect my devotion, but he thinks I'd be happier and better off as a Muslim. I can f return the favor. You know, I can see there I've met many honest, good, hardworking, decent Muslims, and I can admire their devotion and their faith and still think that they'd be better off if they were Catholic. We can agree to disagree, and given that we're likely to be living alongside each other for the foreseeable future, it's better that we learn to disagree, agree to disagree, but that doesn't mean that we have to turn our ideas into some bland, generic mush that satisfies nobody in the name of ecumenicism. I have faith in my tradition. I have over 1,500 years of writing to look back on. I believe it can stand up to discourse and to criticism. You know, I acknowledge that people of goodwill could come to different conclusions than I do. I'm happy to explore their conclusions and reasons. Again, I'm secure enough in my faith, and I trust they're secure enough in theirs, that we can have a conversation and we don't have to come away agreeing with everything the other says, nor do we have to bend on our positions to learn something about each other and to establish decent relationships between our community. In fact, I think that's the only way we could ever establish any kind of relationships between our community is out of a place of mutual respect and mutual understanding. I would also note that if you are sincerely interested in winning people over to your cause, and if you're following the Christian message of spreading the good news, you should be, you will probably have more success doing this by treating your desired audience with respect and by living a good Christian life and setting a good example than you will by grabbing them by the lapels and screaming, Accept Christ or burn in hell, Muslim! I support political indifferentism to religion insofar as that means that the individual is free to practice his or her spiritual beliefs as he or she sees fit. The problem is, is for most secular people, religious indifferentism is a sign that every religion is equally true, or more precisely, that every religion is equally irrelevant. I support an open arena for discourse and debate about religious ideas in a free society, not because I think those ideas are irrelevant, but because I think that the ideas we're discussing are the most relevant ideas there are, and those ideas need to be tested, they need to be talked about, and they need to be considered. We have differences, and we need to protect and acknowledge those differences, but there's also a lot of common ground between us. Again, as J.R.R. Tolkien said, anybody who sets sail toward the true harbor, you know, no matter how bad their map is, how shaky the trip, they're going to get a glimpse of the truth. I could visit a Hindu mandir. I could visit a mosque. I could visit an Orthodox synagogue. I could visit a Sikh, Sikhs, Baha'is. I could visit religious leaders, 
Christian and non-Christian, and we would disagree on many things. We certainly would. You know, that's not like neither of us would walk away from the debate converted, most likely, but there would be things we would agree on. And one thing all of those religious leaders would agree on is that there is a life after death and that our actions in this life have an impact on that. They would all also agree that spiritual attainment, enlightenment, whatever you want to call it, is a difficult task. It's a chore. It takes an awful lot of work and many people fail to achieve it. And they would also agree that achieving that spiritual state was the most important thing you could do in this lifetime. They all agree that there is a heaven and that you only get there by a steep and narrow road. There would certainly be differences in all of our visions of heaven we would use, we all use a lot of metaphors which suggest intense physical pleasure, of course. And as I noted, there is an idea within Catholicism and within creedal Christianity that there will be an ultimate resurrection of the dead and we will be given a perfect, perfected, perfect body and become our perfect selves and that that life will be eternal. But there's also an understanding in all of these spiritual traditions that the greatest pleasure of heaven is not material pleasures. That gets at a very interesting thing, which I had talked about earlier when I did my podcast on simulacra theory and on the, book, on the television series, The Good Place, how invariably when you see the vision of heaven they came up with was ultimately a place where everybody was shell-shocked and bored to death because you know, they'd had so much pleasure and no real challenges that you know, they were essentially becoming zombies there. The final idea of heaven that the programmers or the showcasters could come up with was a heaven where you finally got to die and go into the great infinity and dissipate and what they're getting at there is a thing that every temporal pleasure every physical pleasure is a blended pleasure a 30 second orgasm is wonderful a five minute orgasm might be even better a three hour orgasm would be pretty painful and a three week orgasm would be torture we want something more than good food, good sex, and good fun. We want something more than being able to look at pretty things or listen to pretty music. There's an aching inside us for something greater, something that we've never seen but that we know in our hearts we want to go back to. That sense of longing and awe you feel when you enter a cathedral or when you hear Wagner's Parsifal or when you see a particularly stunning landscape, that idea, that hardwiring inside us that makes us long for that place, that gives us that feeling that we're in the presence of something greater that lies beyond this world, is that just some quirk in our brains that leads us to delusions of a higher power? Or is it a sense which points us towards the most important and most real reality of all? Now that we've listened to my ramblings on heaven, let's see what the Catholic Church has to say. This comes from an article in the 1910 New Advent Encyclopedia. It is a Catholic encyclopedia, complete with an imprimatur which means it is, there is nothing in here that contradicts Catholic doctrine. The existence of heaven is, of course, denied by atheists, materialists, and pantheists of all centuries, as well as by those rationalists who teach that the soul perishes with the body. 
in short, by all who deny the existence of God or the immortality of the soul. But for the rest, if we abstract from the specific quality and the supernatural character of heaven, the doctrine has never met with any opposition worthy of note. Even mere reason can prove the existence of heaven or of the happy state of the just in the next life. We shall give a brief outline of the principal arguments. From these we shall, at the same time, see that the bliss of heaven is eternal and consists primarily in the possession of God, and that heaven presupposes a condition of perfect happiness in which every wish of the heart finds adequate satisfaction. Point 1. God made all things for his objective honor and glory. Each creature was to manifest his divine perfections by becoming a likeness of God, each according to its capacity. But man is capable of becoming in the greatest and most perfect manner a likeness of God when he knows and loves his infinite perfections with a knowledge and love analogous to God's own love and knowledge. Therefore, man is created to know God and to love him. Moreover, this knowledge and love is to be eternal, for such is man's capability and his calling, because his soul is immortal. Lastly, to know God and to love him is the noblest occupation of the human mind, and consequently also its supreme happiness. Therefore, man is created for eternal happiness, and he will infallibly attain it hereafter, unless by sin he renders himself unworthy of so high a destiny. God made all things for his formal glory, which consists in the knowledge and love shown him by rational creatures. Irrational creatures cannot give formal glory to God directly, but they should assist rational creatures in doing so. This they can do by manifesting God's perfections and by rendering other services, whilst rational creatures should, by their very own personal knowledge and love of God, refer and direct all creatures to him as their last end. Therefore, every intelligent creature in general, and man in particular, is destined to know and love God forever, though he may forfeit eternal happiness by sin. Point. God, in his infinite justice and holiness, must give virtue its due reward. But, as experience teaches, the virtuous do not obtain a sufficient reward here. Hence, they will be recompensed hereafter, and the reward must be everlasting, since the soul is immortal. Nor can it be supposed that the soul in the next life must merit her continuance in happiness by a continued series of combats, for this would be repugnant to all the tendencies and desires of human nature. Point. God in his wisdom must set on the moral law a sanction, sufficiently appropriate and efficacious. But unless each man is rewarded according to the measure of his good works, such a sanction could not be said to exist. Mere infliction of punishment for sin would be insufficient. In any case, reward for good deeds is the best means of inspiring zeal for virtue. Nature itself teaches us to reward virtue in others whenever we can, and to hope for a reward of our own good actions from the supreme ruler of the universe. That reward not being given here will be given hereafter. Point. God has implanted in the heart of man a love of virtue and a love of happiness. Consequently, God, because of his wisdom, must, by rewarding virtue, establish perfect harmony between these two tendencies. But such a harmony is not established in this life. Therefore, it will be brought about in the next. Point. Each man has an innate desire for perfect beatitude. Experience proves this. The sight of the imperfect goods of earth naturally leads us to form the conception of a happiness so perfect as to satisfy all the desires of our heart. But we cannot conceive such a state without desiring it. Therefore, we are destined for a happiness that is perfect and, for that very reason, eternal, and it will be ours unless we forfeit it by sin. A natural tendency without an object is incompatible both with nature and with the Creator's goodness. The arguments thus far advanced prove the existence of heaven as a state of perfect happiness. Point. 
We are born for higher things, for the possession of God. This earth can satisfy no man, least of all the wise. Vanity of vanities, says the scripture, Ecclesiastes 1.1, and St. Augustine explained, Thou hast made us for thyself, O God, and our heart is troubled till it rests in thee. Point. We are created for wisdom, for a possession of truth, perfect in its kind. Our mental faculties and the aspirations of our nature give proof of this. But the scanty knowledge that we can acquire on earth stands in no proportion to the capabilities of our soul. We shall possess truth in higher perfection hereafter. Point. God made us for holiness, for a complete and final triumph over passion, and for the perfect and secure possession of virtue. Our natural aptitudes and desires bear witness to this. But this happy goal is not reached on earth, but in the next life. Point. We are created for love and friendship, for indissoluble union with our friends. At the grave of those we love, our heart longs for a future reunion. This cry of nature is no delusion. A joyful and everlasting reunion awaits the just man beyond, beyond the grave. Point. It is the conviction of all peoples that there is a heaven in which the just will rejoice in the next life. But in the fundamental questions of our being and our destiny, a conviction so unanimous and universal cannot be erroneous. Otherwise, the world and the order of this world would remain an utter enigma to intelligent creatures who ought to know at least the necessary means for reaching their appointed end. Point. Very few deny the existence of heaven, and these few are practically all atheists and epicureans. But surely it cannot be that all the rest have erred in an isolated class of men such as these are not the true guides of the most fundamental question of our being. For apostasy from God and his law cannot be the key to wisdom. The process of getting to heaven in Christianity as in other world religions is not easy. There's more involved to it than just accepting God's gift of grace. That, you know, that's the, an important thing. And again, this is a thing with Christianity. Our works aren't what get us to heaven. It is our love for God, our acceptance of God's gift, and our working to please God because we love God, not because we're terrified of God, not because we expect an extra reward in the next life for that. You know, we're reminded constantly as Christians that we are sinners. You know, that doesn't mean we get to wallow in sin. We're expected to fight against that. We're expected to resist temptations. And you're going to find things like this in every other world religion you look at. Nobody's going to tell you you get to do whatever you want and get a free pass into heaven. You know, there's more to it than just, well, I do a couple of rituals here. You know, I've read a couple of New Age books and I practice a lot of positive affirmations and I'm working to balance my karma so that I'll be reborn in the next life into a Buddhahood. It it doesn't work that way in any religion. There's the idea that heaven is something to strive for, and heaven is something that requires conscious work on the part of the, of the person aspiring entrance into heaven. In the case of Christianity, we believe Jesus has done the heavy lifting for us so long as we believe, so long as we have faith, and so long as we live a Christian life, yet we cooperate with Jesus in the process of our redemption. We believe that we've got a decent chance of going to heaven. We also understand that being a member of a church or even preaching the name of Jesus does not in itself guarantee admission into heaven. You know, as he famously says, you know, many will come up to me and tell me all the good things they've done in my name, and I'm going to be like, get away from me, I know you not. But the most important thing about Christianity is there's the idea that God does not want you to go to hell. God does not want anybody to go to hell. 
God made an extreme sacrifice to make going to hell unnecessary and will make take extreme measures to see that you make your way into heaven. Most of those preachers on the street preaching hellfire and damnation aren't doing that because they're celebrating you going to hell. It's because they believe that will be the most effective way into shocking you of the danger and of getting you to heaven. Jesus wants everybody to make that conscious choice to follow him, to make that conscious choice to believe and to become part of the church and of the body of Christ. Now that's definitely a big commitment. From the beginning, becoming a Christian has frequently involved getting a hostile reaction from the world, and that is certainly the case today. Being a Christian means you're part of an outmoded religion. The words white supremacy, theocracy, handmaid's tale, all sorts of things may get thrown at you. Again, it's universally acknowledged across the traditions that have an idea of an afterlife that getting to heaven is not an easy task, and there are lots of obstacles along the way. You may lose social status, you may lose friends, you may lose family, you may even lose your life. Many Christians have lost all these things, but yet throughout the history of Christianity, we find time and again that Christians have decided that all these sufferings were worth it and that they felt themselves better and happier for following Christ despite the misfortunes which came upon them. They were willing to give up everything they had. They were willing to suffer torture and imprisonment. They were even willing to die just so that they could look upon the face of God and live. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, this has been Kanaz Filan with episode 13 of Notes from the End of Time. Kanaz Filan goes to heaven. Thank you again for tuning in, and may God bless us each and every one. <laughs>